This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. Good day, everyone. Thanks for being here. Welcome to Preservation Oaks, where with every episode we embark on a journey through the diverse landscapes and vibrant stories of the United States, one state at a time. We're currently in one of our Great Lakes states, the great state of Michigan. Nestled in the heart of the Midwest, Michigan is a place where the past and present coalesce, offering a tapestry of history, culture, and natural beauty. From the bustling urban energy of cities like Detroit, Lansing, and Grand Rapids to the serene shores of the Great Lakes, Michigan captivates with its unique blend of industry, innovation, and recreational wonders. Home to the iconic Motown sound, the automotive industry, and a rich Native American and European heritage, this state has left an indelible mark on the American culture. Join us as we explore the historic wonders of the Upper Peninsula, the vibrant art scene in Ann Arbor, and the maritime charm of the coastal towns. Michigan isn't just a state. It's a collection of American historic and wonderful stories waiting to be told by our expert guests. So buckle up and get ready to dive into the spirit of the Wolverine State, where the lakes are great, the landscapes are diverse, and the people are as resilient as the waves that crash upon its shores. This is Preservation Oaks, and over the next several episodes, we're about to discover the essence of Michigan together. For this episode, we greet Mr. Dan Truckee, the director of the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center, located on the campus of Northern Michigan University in Marquette, Michigan. The mission of the UP Heritage Center is to promote and preserve the history and culture of the Upper Peninsula through an active slate of exhibitions and engaging public programs for the whole region. The center also collects and preserves artifacts related to the history of Northern Michigan University. I'm Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and I'm coming to you from Salt Lake City, and this is Preservation Oaks, the original talk program on MicroStream Radio where we feature information about museums, cultural and heritage institutions, associations, historical and genealogical societies, and history-focused media creators across the United States. By the way, our main platform is preservationoaks.podbean.com, 
but you can find us on nearly all podcast platforms as well as Rumble, Getter, Minds, TikTok, Facebook, Odyssey, and YouTube. So wherever you listen to the program, I appreciate it very much when you like, comment, follow, or subscribe. No matter what state you're in, if you'd like your organization to be featured as our guest on the program, or if you have questions or comments about the program, spin off an email to preservationoaks at gmail.com. On our next episode of Preservation Oaks, we meet with Rhiannon Cezanne, the Executive Director of the Berrien County Historical Association. The association was established in 1968 to preserve the 1839 County Courthouse and serve as the heart of Berrien County's past. Since then, the historic facilities have expanded to include four additional buildings, and the area is now referred to as the History Center at Courthouse Square. All right, that being said, let's get to show snapping. Our historic February events for this episode. On February 1st, 1788, the first U.S. patent for an improvement to steamships was issued to Isaac Briggs and William Longstreet. On February 1st, 1983, Matthews, Tansel, and Fannin obtained a patent for a digital voicemail system. On February 2nd, 1869, James Oliver invented the removable tempered steel plow blade. On February 6, 1917, sun-made raisins were trademark registered. On February 8, 1916, Charles Kettering received a patent for a self-starting automobile engine. On February 9, 1811, Robert Fulton was granted a patent for the practical steamboat. On February 10, 1976, Sidney Jacoby was granted a patent for a combination smoke and heat detector alarm. Thank you to ThoughtCo.com for our February events for this episode. Let's drink some tea, some Twining's tea. I love Twining's tea. Mmm. Hot and good. All right, here's a biography of our guest. Dan Truckee is the director curator of the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. Before taking this position in 2007, he worked at museums in Iowa, Connecticut, New York, and Michigan. He received his B.S. in History in 1990 from Northern Michigan University, an M.A. in Popular Culture in 1992 from Bowling Green State University, and M.A. in History Museum Studies in 1998 from Cooperstown Graduate Program, SUNY Oneonta. He has previously published articles in Michigan History, the Chronicle Members Magazine for the Historical Society of Michigan, Northern Magazine, and Marquette Monthly. He received the Peninsula Prize for Public Engagement from the Michigan Museums Association October 2018. He serves on the board of the Historical Society of Michigan and has served on the boards of FinFest USA, Pine Mountain Music Festival, Michigan Museums Association, and the Traverse Area Arts Council. He's a native of Michigan, growing up in both the lower and upper peninsulas of Michigan. All right. Welcome to the program, Dan. Well, thank you, Sean. I'm really looking forward to it. And I understand that the Heritage Center is located in Marquette. What do you love most about living in Marquette, way up north there? 
And how does it set itself apart from other places in Michigan? Well, Marquette is is heaven to a lot of people. Um, and part of the reason why is because we live in a place that it's a, a wonderful town. It's got a lot of cultural opportunities, but we are minutes away from wilderness. And so the ability to get out and be out in the forest and in the wild parts of the UP, you can be there very quickly and you don't have to drive hours to get to it. It's it's right there, right out our back door practically. And that's one of the reasons I love living here and why most people love living here is because of that. But I think one of the things that sets Marquette and this region apart from other parts of the state is that we really have a sense of place that a lot of places in Michigan and in the Midwest in general are losing more and more. I think it's because we are a bit isolated. And for that reason, we haven't had a lot of the same development that other places have had. And there's really been a desire on the part of the people of the UP to try to keep things much as the way as they've always been, or at least to to preserve things as they are, the culture, to some extent, the nature of the towns and the place itself. So there really is a sense of place that when you are here, it is it is a different place. And I've had many people who have commented on that, who have come here from other places that you know, they said once we cross that bridge or once we cross the Wisconsin line, it just seemed like it was different. There was something about this place that is different. And and and, and it's true. And I think that's one of the reasons why I, I love living here and what sets it apart from other parts of Michigan and the Midwest. I lived in New England for a while and I love New England. But unlike some parts of New England where you have a town like Litchfield, Connecticut, which is this beautiful rural town, but it's it's almost like a movie set. <laughs> right. Newburyport, Massachusetts. It's like, it's like a movie set. The UP is rough. You know, it's 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 real, but it's also rough. And it's not a movie set. And that and that it gives a, a sense of reality about the place. You know, I was just talking about that with somebody today of we if we could do one thing in Marquette, it would be to bury all of the electrical lines and telephone lines in town because they run through all parts of town, you know, yeah. because for whatever reason they didn't do that. And so it on one hand, it's part of the charm of the place. On the other hand, they're really ugly and it'd be great if they were all underground. <laughs> yeah, sure would, huh? Yeah. So, you know, it, the, that's the thing about the UP. It's a real place and and in both the, the the good, the bad, and the ugly, which is one of the reasons I like it. Well, Dan, have you explored any hidden gems or local favorites in Marquette you think everybody should know about? Well, yeah, hidden gems, it's hard to come by because it seems like everybody here knows about everything. But when people come here from outside, they're always looking for those those things. And too often the focus is on the city of Marquette itself and and because we have these beautiful historic structures and uh, and historic districts where there are beautiful houses and things. And I could talk all day about all of those, but I always tell people to get out and go to places like Nagani and Nishpeming, which are, as we say here, up the hill, because they are, they're literally up this massive, not hill, but just the country side just goes further up, Agreed. uphill from Marquette to the west. Yeah. And there are these old mining towns that 
you know, a lot of people don't, it, because the freeway pa- bypasses them now, people don't go into those towns. And I would say, you got to go there and just drive around and see what's there. There's just some amazing historic districts there and and the remnants of the mining communities. And um, and we have this, this heritage trail, the Iron Ore Heritage Trail, that runs all the way from a town called Republic, about 40 miles west of here, all the way to Marquette. And even further beyond, and along that, you you see all these remnants of the mining activities that are no longer here. So, the, I think that's one of the things I always tell people: you know, get a bike and ride around on that trail, and and really get a sense of what is still here from from the heyday, if you will, of the mining industry. Very cool. Well, twenty miles, I think, right around twenty miles to the east, you have a town called Christmas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Christmas is a, a yeah, it's changed a lot because now it's it's the location of a casino, but but it all came about back in the 1930s. A guy started a Christmas toy store, and actually was making Christmas toys there. Oh, and the whole town town, I think that's a little grandiose village, if you will, hamlet, decided to adopt this as a theme. And soon there were a number of Christmas themed places in in that place and so they renamed it christmas when they actually incorporated though it's hardly incorporated i don't i assume they have a township i forget the name of the township there (laughs) (laughs) so but now there's a casino there and that's the big draw but there are some other businesses and it's a it's really a tourist town we have a lot of those in up but it's right on lake superior it's absolutely gorgeous there there's a state park and uh and a historic site and um from when it was another town that burned down in the 1800s. So, you know, we had towns that have been built on top of other towns that once were here that are now gone and, uh, and ghost towns all over the UP. Wow. Yeah. There's a lot of remnants of things in the UP. I imagine it's got a beautiful history. Now, are there any annual events or festivals in Marquette you always look forward to attending? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm very actively involved with the Hiawatha Traditional Music Festival. Which takes place every July here in Marquette, and it's uh, it's been going on for over forty years now, and it's just a great gathering of folk music aficionados and lovers and musicians, and you know we we bring not only internationally known acts but also local performers to be a part of it and to conduct workshops and dances, and it's a, an important part of our our culture here because in addition to being entertaining, it's helping preserve the folk music culture and the dance culture of the region, and which is a very important thing to me personally. So, yeah, that's that's one event that I, I very much, you know, am involved in and, and look forward to each year. It's one of the things that I was really excited about talking with you about at the Bomir UP Heritage Center. You always have musical events that are... Uh, I don't know the right word. Is it cultural because they're classical in nature? But you have local musicians in and and just wonderful events related to music. Oh. Yeah, yeah. No, I it, it from the time I came here at the Heritage Center back in two thousand and seven, there were a lot of people who thought of what we were going to be as just be a history museum and. And I said, well, we're actually a heritage center, and there's a difference between a heritage center and a history museum. And the difference is that heritage is our living culture, our living history. What are the things that today are 
still a part of our culture, the culture of the Upper Peninsula or the Upper culture. And I know we'll talk about that in a little bit, but, and a part of that is music. Music is a big part of that culture and um, especially the Finnish culture here in the Upper Peninsula and how that influenced the culture of the region in general, but other groups as well. And, and music and dance were a big part of that. And unfortunately, because it's just the nature of traditional music, unless people are continuing to play it and, and pass it on, it disappears. And so I've always felt that was an important part of our mission is to make sure that we were continuing these traditions or we're exposing people to these traditions. And so that, you know, that included create at, at that for a long time in Marquette, there really wasn't a venue for local folk musicians or in town. There wasn't a coffee house venue or even a bar that was interested oh, in doing it. That's too bad. That's changed a lot now over the last 10 years or so. And um, so we don't have to play that role as much as we used to. But I also, um, I used to run the concert series at the university and they ended the funding for that. And so what I do every year is I, I do two big folk concerts each year, bringing in traditional acts from all over the world, usually reflecting the, the culture of the Upper Peninsula. You know, I brought in French Canadian performing groups and Scottish and Finnish and, you know, Italian groups, you know, from all over the world have come to perform. And, um, and so I, I see that as, you know, a big part of what we do as a heritage center is more than just talking about history, but, you know, our living culture as well. Very cool. Now you're right there on Lake Superior. Very cool. I don't know much about Lake Superior, but you, you mentioned, you know, that you spent some time in New England. And when last time I was in New England, it was all about seafood. Are there any <laughs> specific local dishes or restaurants in Marquette related to the fishing industry that you would recommend to somebody visiting for the first time? Yeah, I mean, one of the big things if you come here is many of the menus are going to have uh, white fish on the menu. White fish is a very popular fish from Lake Superior, probably because it's a, it's a real mild fish, so it's not very fishy tasting. And you can do a lot of things with it. And so a number of the restaurants in town are going to have various takes on on whitefish dishes. But, you know, any type of fish are is a big part of the diet here. And, and especially, you know, like Wisconsin, the UP has a lot of fish fries on Friday nights. So okay. if you go out, you're going to have a fish fry where you can get walleye or whitefish or perch any of the local fish, not necessarily trout. See, I prefer trout, but you don't really deep fry trout as much. So you don't usually see that on fish fries, but sometimes you will see local trout on menus as well. And lake trout, which are these massive trout. So yeah, seafood, or as we call it, lake, I would say lake food more than seafood because it really is really connected to the lake and is specific to fish because we can't really eat any of the other stuff that comes out of the lake. Yeah or you wouldn't want to. So yeah, that's a very active part of our, our, our cuisine. But we also have some of the things that the ethnic groups brought, in particular the pasty, which was brought by the Cornish miners to the UP and today is ever present anywhere in the, in the Upper Peninsula. There are pasty stores 
And it was embraced by all the groups, not just the Cornish. So, you know, the Finns adopted it and changed it, adds some things to it and other groups as well, you know, a cultural groups. So and now it's considered a Uper food, not so much connected with any one particular ethnic group. And so the pasty is, is a, a very popular thing here. And it's, it's a lot of tourists who come here. That's one of the thing, first things they want to do is get a pasty when they come to the UP. Oh, but for cool. us, it's just part of our diet. It's something that we eat on a weekly or monthly basis. You mentioned um, a word I haven't heard before. It's a, a youper. What is a youper? Well, a youper is a resident. Well, I'm going to say a resident. A youper is a native of the Upper Peninsula. Okay. Um, if you asked a youper, a true youper, what a youper is, they would say someone who was born in the UP. And I'm I'm what they would call a transplant youper because I was born in the lower peninsula and i moved here when i was a kid and had went away and then came back in 2007 so i'm what would be called a transplant youper because i i came from someplace else but i moved here and i embraced the culture and if you really embrace it you'll become an honorary youper oh cool you know which is the title that you, is conveyed on you by a true youper. So you know, you're an honorary youper. <laughs> <laughs> That's what um, I want to be an honorary youper. <laughs> honorary youper. Actually, we we had a an incident a couple of years ago. Incident. We had a thing that happened. Gordon Ramsay, the chef, came to the UP to film one of his shows. And his his in the show, it was a National Geographic show of his. He, he said his goal of the show was to he was going to be here for like two weeks was to become a true youper, a really, or he said, a youpa, a youpa is what he said <laughs> in his English accent. And we all just laugh. We're just like, you can't be a true youper unless you're not, unless you're born here. You know, it's something. And, and so that, yeah, but a youper is a person who lives in the UP, who embraces the culture of the UP, but specifically also was born in the UP. So okay. my wife was born in the UP, so she's a youper. A true youper, but myself and my kids are not because they weren't born here either. So, okay, that's very cool. So you have winter there. Mm, yeah. How, how too does much winter. winter shape the lifestyle and activities in Marquette every year? Well, you know, what it really comes down to is that our winters here can be really long. It can be six months long of real winter. This year is a is a weird one. We, we've had a mild winter so far because of El Nino. But when the things shift and, and, and we get a true winter here, it's about a six-month-long season. Starts in late October, runs until April, and sometimes even into May. And so you have a choice. You have two choices. <laughs> you can either hunker down in your home and just pretend like it doesn't exist or you can get out and embrace it. Mm. And if you hunker down at home more often than not, you, uh, you will be stir crazy by, by the spring, which we really don't have much of a spring here. It's just all of a sudden gets green and then it's summer it seems like, but because I grew up in it, I learned to embrace it. And I, I do that by getting out in the winter as much as possible. I cross country ski, I snowshoe, I downhill ski, 
or even just getting out and 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 we have events like another big event we have is our a dog sled race that we have every year if we have enough snow we didn't have enough snow we had to cancel last year for the first time but that's an important event because it's an an outdoor event and so here you are in the middle of february sometimes in below zero temperatures and people are lined the street of marquette watching dog sleds go down main street of marquette and and going to places along the route to cheer on the dog sleds and it's a way of embracing the winter culture that we have here because if you don't it will go crazy yeah six months it just goes on for so long and the problem isn't even just the cold and the snow so that gets to be a pain in the butt it's the gray we just get gray and it'll be gray for like a month but we'll hardly see the sun and that really starts a seasonal disorder which i definitely sometimes suffer from can be a real problem here you sun lack of sunlight can really start to affect people so whenever the sun comes out in the winter you just you have to get out and soak it in because otherwise it will it will really affect you hmm. and that it has positive and negative effects on people i think and, and it's not for everybody in fact we always say that when someone you know from someplace else you know often times they come in a very nice part of the year you know summer or the fall and there's oh this is just wonderful and we're like okay we'll see how you feel next may <laughs> and sometimes you give them you just look at them in may and they're like I, I i i can't do this you know i can't do this every year and so they won't last and we so we always call the winter the it, you know weeds out the the week yeah um, you know because it, it really does it's prior to the Part of the reason that I don't think we'll ever grow to the point of being a, a major city because it's just it's just too harsh for most people. Very interesting. Wow. A lot of winter sports out there, people having fun. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. We have a thing in the town called Trenaria, a tiny little town. They have an outhouse race and people <laughs> build these elaborate outhouses and put them on uh, sleds and they uh, race down main street of trinary <laughs> so that's the kind of things that people do up here to keep from going crazy in the winter time and we also have two festivals that are dedicated to heiki lunta now heiki lunta is a finnish american creation he is the god of snow okay. and he's not a true f- if you went to finland and said heiki lunta people would look at you and like what are you talking about it was created by people in the up and and there's two festivals dedicated to Ekilunta in the UP in the wintertime as a way to, you know, embrace the culture, the winter culture. Very cool. Very cool. What's your favorite memory or experience that truly captures the essence of living in Marquette, Michigan? You know, I, I think as a kid, we lived in lower Michigan when I was a kid. And we would come up here to visit my grandparents because my parents were both from the UP. They were true UPers. And for us, the memory of coming here, it was a journey. It was like this pilgrimage that we make every year from Flint. And we would, you know, you drive for hours and then finally we would see the Mackinac Bridge. And it was the gateway. Mm. And everything changed after that. A few years ago, my brother and I, he works here at the university. We were at a, an innovation conference. Actually, it was last year, and we, had, we were given Legos. 
and he and I were at different tables, and we were told, asked, build something that tells your story of how you came to be here. And both him and I at different tables built the Mackinac Bridge <laughs> because that was what brought us here literally as children. And then we moved here as kids, and then, you know, it's been a part of our lives, and it really is the gateway to the UP. And those experiences as a kid coming up here to see this very different place and be around family and hearing the way people talk, because the way people talk here is very different from the way they talk in Flint or in other parts of lower Michigan. More Canadian or? What's that? Is it more Canadian? Well, the Uper accent is a, is a weird amalgamation of different influences. And it kind of depends on the town you live in, because if you go to the, Western Upper Peninsula, where a lot of the towns have very large Finnish populations. It's very much more influenced by Finnish language and the the patterns of Finnish language. And if you live in, let's say, the Sault Ste. Marie, which is right on the Canadian border, it's more influenced by the Canadian aspect, but they all have some commonalities. And so it is, a, it is the Canadian influence, it's the, the Finnish and Scandinavian influence. And in certain towns, there's also the Italian influence and Croatian. And so it really is these, it, and where it really came from, there's a wonderful book called Uper Talk. It was written by a friend of mine, a professor named Catherine Remlinger at Grand Valley State Downstate. And she did a great study of it. And one of the things is, at, that I've come to believe is, is it really is a a language of the playground. You know, you, you had all these children who were the, you know, children of immigrants going to school together. And like my grandmother spoke only Finnish when she went to kindergarten. My grandfather spoke only French because he was from, his family came from Quebec. And so they were learning English together. And so you have, of course, in class, they would be learning it, but they would also be communicating on the playground. And so I think that's really where the, these accents and the dialect and all that really started to develop is amongst the children. And so, but it's also changed a lot because of popular culture and television and radio and all mm, those yeah. things. So, you know, it, it really depends on a lot of different factors, but, you know, in, in certain places and certain age groups and certain ethnicities you hear, you know, it can be very, very strong. I hope you guys never lose that in the UP. I used to travel quite a bit for business, (laughs) sometimes to Canada, but not much. I used to travel mostly in the Western United States and I would travel incessantly all the time. And I would wake up in the hotel, you know, in the morning, throw open the drapes, look outside, see the same McDonald's, Burger King, whatever, and at times forget where I was. <laughs> and I'd be, because it all looked the same. I was yeah. like, okay, what city am I in again? You know, and uh, I hope you never lose that cultural heritage. Well, that's part of why I'm here. That was part of the reason I came here to work here. And the whole idea of the center is to try to Keep these things alive, but also keep people mindful of these things. Um, yeah, because that's that's the key. Is and 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 I think that's one thing that I've seen. It's not because of us, but that I have seen a big change in the UP is people being more mindful of 
that sense of place, the sense of our culture, identity with our culture, rather than it being, for a long time, the term youper was almost a derogatory term. And people didn't embrace it at first. They thought it was kind of like the equivalent of redneck or hick. Oh. And then youpers really did come to identify with it and the culture. And now it's something that they are very proud of being. And um, it's now in the Webster Dictionary. So, oh, very cool. you know, it's, uh, there is an embracing of it as a, as a, as a culture, as a place, as a, all of those things. And that's, that's, I think, really important. But change is also inevitable and it's going to have to be essential to the UP surviving. So there's always going to be challenges um, that, that we have to, and, and that's one of the things we talk a lot about around the UP is just, okay, things are going to change, but what are we going to be able to do to keep things, as, to keep the culture in the place? Yeah, very important. So what's the history of Marquette County, Dan, the Upper Peninsula? What, what tales from the past bring your area to life? Well, I always start with the original people here. And the reason why is because too often that question is always answered with, well, the uh, prospectors came to Marquette in 1849. <laughs> you know, yes, that's that's often where the history book started, but it really starts with the indigenous people who were here for hundreds of years before Europeans ever came here. Yeah. And, um, and that being primarily the Ojibwa people who are part of the larger group called the Anishinaabe, which is the people of the three fires or the council of the three fires, the Ojibwa, the Ottawa, and the Potawatomi. And they had, this region actually was not their original home. They originally lived in the Northeast of uh, where, where the maritime provinces of Canada are now. And they migrated here about a thousand years ago, I believe, or maybe further back. And their culture, you know, this this was their their this their homeland, and it still is their ancestral homeland today. So I, I think it's always important to start there because that is not something of the past. We have a very vibrant Anishinaabe culture in the Upper Peninsula today. It's it's still, you know, challenged by all the same things that everyone else are challenged with, and sometimes more than other people are challenged with, but. They are working so hard to keep their culture vibrant and alive and uh, thriving, and uh, and it's an important part of our, our not only our history but our current culture. So, I always start with them because this is where they were, and obviously the fur trade changed everything in the 1600s and in 18th and 17th century. When Europeans came here, it changed not only for Europeans but it changed it for the Native Americans as well. And for a long time, that's the only reason anyone came up here was the fur trade and mission work. And so we had the Jesuits coming up here, and there's still a lasting influence of the of the Jesuits in this region all over the upper Midwest, really. But, you know, that's why people were coming here was to make money and to save souls. And it wouldn't be until the 19th century when you have explorations of the region that by you know people who understood the landscape and understood what the resources were that they realized that there was a wealth of riches up here and in the mid-19th century you start to see the development of the mining regions here huge mining regions of copper iron ore 
And that's going to alter the Upper Peninsula in ways that you know, no one could have imagined. Not only it's the development of communities and, and the introduction of all of these Americans and people from all over the world, immigrants coming here from all over the world, but the changing of the landscape. A, a primeval forest that went from one end of the UP to the other, essentially being chopped down over a 50-year period. And it's now largely been replenished, but it, you know, what originally was there, very little this of that original forest, just very minute parts of that old-growth forest still exist. And so it, it just altered the landscape and the place itself. At the same time, it made billions of dollars for investors and, and the mining companies and built the towns that are now the, you know, the backbone of the UP, including places like Marquette. Marquette itself was a shipping town. There wasn't any mining in Marquette, per se, some quarries and small little mines that never went anywhere, but it, it was a shipping town and, uh, and really continued that way. And to this day, we still have iron ore shipping in Marquette because we still have one active iron ore mine west of here. And, and so we still have one ore dock that's still in service. But at one time, there were several ore docks and several mines that were feeding the shipping industry in Marquette. And mining for a long time, you know, from the mid-19th century into the mid-20th century was really the backbone of, of the UP's economy. But it really began to shift in the second half of the 20th century to the point that whole mining districts went out of business. And now the only active mines in the Upper Peninsula are two mines in Marquette County. And the, the other regions, there's no active mining in any of them. And that had a huge impact on the, the, oh, yeah. the populations and the, and the sustainability of communities that we're challenged with today. It's, it's an ongoing issue. And so that really, in a nutshell, is kind of the history of you know, Market County and the UP. And the real question now is, what do we do now? You know, what's our future? Do we have a future? And if what is that future going to be? You know. Absolutely. What unique challenges or opportunities do you face in safeguarding Marquette's heritage? I would say development, because it is becoming a more popular place for people to relocate, especially for the summertime. We have a lot more summer residents. So there's a big pressure to build uh, more housing, especially near the lakeshore. One of the things that Marquette did that was very smart, and a lot of communities didn't do this, is that when the shoreline, which much of the shoreline around Marquette had become industrialized during the shipping period, when those industries went away, the city took over those shorelines. And instead of selling off the shoreline, they made it public. And so we have an almost completely uninterrupted shoreline of public access from one end of the city limits along Lake Superior to the other. It's, I don't know how many miles it is. It's like 10 miles or more of beaches and coves and, 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 and one of the finest parks, city parks that, you're, that you could ever imagine, Prescott Park which is this large peninsula that juts into Lake Superior and is just a beautiful place, rugged cliffs and, 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 and coves, and it's just absolutely beautiful. 
and all this remained undeveloped. But there is a pressure now to develop on the other side of the road, <laughs> you know, from one end of the U- of Marquette to the other because of the demand for housing, and especially with access to the lake. Oh, yeah. So it's one of the challenges because, you know, on one hand, it's there's a certain inevitability to it because we are becoming, we have been discovered. Like we just, today, again, there was some online list of best cities in Michigan to live and Marquette was right near the top. And you see these nationally, these lists of best outdoor towns to live in, you know, Marquette's always in those lists because it is. And so there are, we are discovered and more and more people are wanting to to live here. And now with telecommunication, people can do so and still have their careers. So it's it, we are seeing growth to the point that housing, we are having a housing crisis in Marquette, which is actually good for the outlying communities like Nagani, Nishpeming, and Gwynn, which is another town nearby, because now they're getting some of the people who can't afford to live in Marquette. Right. And that's good for those communities because they've been through some really hard times over the years. So, but the the reason why that's important or an issue is because what it's going to do is put more pressure on the natural surroundings of Marquette and those other places. Because inevitably, as more and more people come here, we're going to run out of room. And we've zoned a lot of places as being natural places that we want to protect. But, you know, at a certain point in time, we have to decide, you know, how much, how much forest land do we want to give up? And how much, you know, do we start building up? You know, do we start building high rises and things that right now are not allowed in the community? Right. And, you know, there's good, you know, good and bad and all those things. So I think it's, these are the things that Marquette is, I, the next 20, 30 years are going to be really important to Marquette, not only in just growth, but in how we plan for our growth and and preserving our history and our historic districts. I think that's something that is becoming, Marquette already embraces that and, and the community already, you know, the countywide, there's a lot of embracing of that. But at the same time, you know, the, the real estate's getting more and more valuable and, and it's, you know, there is a fear that some of that is going to be challenged by that. And and where development takes place and how that impacts the the cultural landscape. Yeah, I hope the Heritage Center plays a role in that, or that somebody starts, if they haven't already, some kind of an organization that plays a role in advising the city on you know what to protect and what not to protect, and so on. Yeah, there there are. I I wouldn't say there's one organization, but you know we have various groups in community and you know, that advocate for preservation and, 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 and keeping things, you know, what we find special about the city and, and protecting them. And we've lost a lot of wonderful historic structures, you know, in that period, especially during the 1960s and 70s and into the 80s. But Really, since then, there's been a you know a real attention and desire to preserve historic structures in Marquette. Right here on campus, we had a beautiful Richardsonian Romanesque building that was torn down in the 1970s because there just was a different attitude about preservation and the value of preservation. 
And I still think to this day that it was probably the biggest mistake the university ever made in tearing that down. And so for me on campus, I, I am a huge advocate for preservation on campus because now our campus is full of mid-century modern buildings, some, some of them by some of the most significant architects in Michigan history. And the attitude now is like, oh, let's tear down that old building from the 60s. No one cares about it. And I'm like, do you know who designed that building? Yeah. You know, and and why why you shouldn't do that? You know, so I'm I'm the advocate on campus for historic preservation as well as, you know, beyond the campus community. And because it's a I think it's a value here as well. Yeah, you've got to start embracing that if you haven't already. We did an episode, episode 47 with Ron Wanamaker of Preservation Burlington, which is in Burlington, Vermont. Mm -hmm. And he works exclusively. He's a very well-educated preservationist, but also a building contractor mm. who got into preservation. So he knows all about how these houses, these old ancient houses were built and so on. And uh, you might want to take a listen to that episode or connect with Ron. I will, definitely. Thank you very much. Yeah. Dan, the music in the background means it's time for a break for a few minutes. Okay. All right, listeners, we'll be right back after these important messages. Hey there, history buffs and curious minds. Remember that rush of excitement when you first uncovered a fascinating story from the past? Well, get ready to relive that thrill because the Bomir Upper Peninsula Heritage Center is bringing engaging history and exciting culture to life. Picture this, a hub of performance and heritage right here in the heart of the Upper Peninsula. The Bomer Center is on a mission to preserve and promote the rich history and culture of the Upper Peninsula. They have mind-blowing exhibitions and captivating public programs that'll have you hooked from start to finish. But that's not all. They're also the guardians of Northern Michigan University's history, collecting and preserving artifacts that tell the incredible story of this university's journey. Now, Here's your chance to be part of this historically and culturally vibrant atmosphere. The Bomer Upper Peninsula Heritage Center is calling for volunteers and supporters like you. Dive into the action and help keep the flame of history and shared human experiences alive. Visit their website at nmu.edu slash Bomer Heritage Center to uncover the treasure trove of events and programs they have in store for 2024. It's not just a visit, it's an adventure into contentment and understanding. Hop by the Bomer Center at 1401 Presque, Isle Avenue, Marquette, Michigan. That's right, right on the campus of Northern Michigan University. Find them in Grease Hall at the corner of 7th Street and Tracy Avenue. So whether you're a history enthusiast, a culture connoisseur, 
or just looking for a unique experience, the Bomer Upper Peninsula Heritage Center welcomes everyone with open arms. Unearth the past, volunteer, and support your local treasure trove of history and magical public events. Check out nmu.edu slash Bomer Heritage Center for more info and let the adventure begin. Music, art, expression, education, culture, and history await. Don't miss your chance to be a part of it. Here's a list of the essentials you'll need to renovate your bathroom whenever you get the time. Safety mask, gloves, goggles, caulking gun, propane torch, silicone sealant, tape measure, putty knives, stud finder, tiles, pry bar, power drill, bucket, chisel, adjustable wrench, screwdrivers, hacksaw, utility knife, several strong cups of coffee, chalk line, paint, brushes, flooring, tub enclosure, plumbing essentials, and an extension cord. And here's a list of the essentials you'll need to volunteer at your local genealogical or historical society instead. A smile. A handshake. An ability to meet and greet people and have fun, a knowledge of local history, research skills. Enjoy volunteering at your local genealogical or historical society today. That's very helpful of you, and benefits your community. I am General Matto van du Maximanus, from the planet you refer to as, BD 114672C. I am the legate of the second AB Picturis B region, governor of the approaches to NU Octantis AB, interplanetary consul, commander of the legions of AB Picturis A, 91 Aquari B, Mulionis B, and Gamma Library B, and I listen to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. Nine out of ten family historians agree, Preservation Oaks is the best podcast on the internet. This is Janet Weber, the president of the Genealogical Society of Washington County, Oregon, and I listen to Sean Thomas Radcliffe and Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Lindsay Flory, Programming Director of the Osage County Historical Society and Holly Genealogical Research Center in Linden, Kansas. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. Welcome back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host, Sean Thomas Radcliffe, and we're here today with Mr. Dan Truckee, the director of the Bowmere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center, located in Marquette, Michigan. Dan, let's pick up where we left off. And welcome back, sir. All right. Thank you. Can you please tell us about the roots of your center's history? Yeah, so there had been talk going back to the 1960s on campus of Northern Michigan University of creating a museum about the Upper Peninsula. And it was something that was just talked about and, and there wasn't any real strong movement to get it done. But there were people who 
were professors here, in particular a guy named Russ Vinyagi, who kind of carried the torch for the idea for a long time. And in the early 2000s, uh, there was a an alumnus of the university, John Bomir, who wanted to make a donation to the university. And I think Dr. Vinyagi got his ear talking about this idea of a UP museum. And John, having grown up in the Upper Peninsula and being French-Canadian like myself, with a deep history in, in that culture and in the UP, you know, he was like, yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I would love to support. And so in 2003, I think it was, he made a donation to create an endowment. And it, the center opened its first gallery in 2006 on campus. And then I was hired in 2007 to be the first director of the center. And so from that point on, you know, I've been working to develop. It was such a great opportunity because it, it basically I was given the, the opportunity to create a museum from the ground up and in a heritage center, if you will, from the ground up. Like I said, it's not just a museum. We have a museum component, but it's it's more than that. And having worked in a lot of history museums over the years and heritage centers, you know, this was just a, a great opportunity to start at the very beginning. What can we create here? How do we do it? And so that's what I've been doing for the last, oh, now 16 years, almost 17 years, is just continuing that process of defining who we are, what we do. And for a long time, we were given just spaces in different parts of campus that were available. First, we had a gallery in um, in our we have a large dome stadium on campus for football and recreational activities. And we had a gallery space there. It wasn't very successful. I was able to get us moved into our main administration building on the first floor. And we were there for several years. And then Dr. Bomir, before he passed away in 2016, gave another donation to help us renovate the space we're in now, which is in a former dormitory. And we've been here now since 2016. And it's been a really good location for us to help. And it's a higher visibility with both the, the community and the campus community and the off-campus community uh, and, a, and a good facility. And now we're going to be moving again <laughs> for the third time to a new facility. They're renovating our library into more of a you know, campus center and we're going to be part of that project. Oh, so cool. it's a it's a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> but it's yeah, it's a lot of change. And so we've been through a lot of changes, but the our our mission has remained the same, which is to celebrate the history and culture of the UP. And we do that through exhibitions, public programming, and uh, and also advocacy, which is something that I try to do as much as I can. But we're also a laboratory for students to learn the museum trade and and other trades too, like public promotion and design and all those things. I've had dozens of students who have worked for me over the years doing that kind of stuff. So it's, you know, we, we wanted to have an educational component for the students as well. It's really exciting work that you're doing. That's why I am excited to speak with you about it. When are you moving? We're not exactly sure. It'll probably be in the fall of 2025. Okay. They basically have emptied out the building that they're going to be renovating and we'll begin this winter on renovations. And it'll probably take a, 
a year at least for the renovations and then six months for everybody to move back into the building who had to leave. So it's going to be a major project, but it's going to be a good move because where we're going to be will really be the center of activity on campus. And we want, we really, really want to be better connected to the student body and have more involvement of the student body in what we do. Well, think it's about the experience that the students will get if if you have, you know, as many students as possible helping with the move and the planning and so on. Think of the experience they'll get. Absolutely. And, and you know, it's something that we, we really strive to do, which is to connect to the students in a meaningful way. And not only just, hey, come see this exhibit, but also, you know, if you want to work in the museum field, here's an opportunity for you to get some experience doing that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I have several students who, who have worked for me who are now working in the museum field. So, you know, I, I'm very proud that we've been able to make that happen, you know, be a part of their education and making that possible. Very cool. Now, I also read that your center preserves Northern Michigan University heritage and history What's the history that you've been able to preserve relative to Northern Michigan University? Well, you know, a lot of it is, <laughs> we have one room that's just the trophy room. <laughs> okay. Because, you know, you have a university that's been around 125 years, and the sports teams have, have won a lot of trophies, and they don't know what to do with them all. And so what happened over the years is they just, Actually, I should go back a little bit. Dr. Minyagi, who I, I mentioned earlier, one of the things he started doing, I think, in the 1970s and 80s is that whenever a department on campus started getting rid of stuff, he started collecting it. Everything from furniture to old technical equipment, scientific equipment to trophies, things that like, you know, well, we're clearing this stuff out. We're going to throw it away. Do you want it? Yes, we'll take it. Mm. And so that's how our collection started for the university collection. And so it is everything from fragments of buildings that no longer stand on campus to silverware from the, you know, from the cafeteria to trophies for national championship teams to uniforms. We have like three versions of our mascots uniforms. They are actually the mascot heads. We've, I think we're on like our fourth one at the university right now. So it's it's everything from nostalgia and memorabilia to actual bits and pieces of the university that we've collected over the years. Equipment. We have a huge collection of technology. That's something that we actively are collecting old computers and uh, technology that has become outdated or obsolete on campus. So we have a huge collection of that stuff. All right. And and so that's, you know, and some of it we still use because there, you know, this is something I talk about with students and, and people in general, you know, we better have a VCR that still works because sometimes the only preservation of something was on videotape. Yeah. So we need to have a VCR that works. Our archives here at the university, which is separate from us, actually has a now has a whole, you know, transfer for all that media. But, you know, old technology, part of the reason we're keeping it is that we're able to access old technology and software and things if necessary. And so it's important that we have those things and that they're in working condition. But, yeah, we have a lot of that kind of stuff in our collection. 
Amazing. You're going to need a basement, a sub-basement, and a sub-sub-basement. Yeah, we, we are getting there, and our new move storage is already an issue, which is always an issue. And we're going to have to have a longer-term solution to that because what we haven't been doing really is actively collecting from the Upper Peninsula. And I think it's something that we're going to have to start doing in the next several decades is because unfortunately some of the historical societies in the UP, the smaller historical societies are just not able to keep up with the amount of materials that are out there. Yeah. Some of them are actually have closed or no longer really operating because the membership is, you know, passed on. And so they have very little actual membership and activity. Some are very active, but others, some others are not. And so what's going to happen to these collections? What's going to happen to the next generation of material culture in the UP? And it's something that, you know, I've been telling the powers that be here at the university, we're going to have to have the space to collect some of this stuff because, you know, in the next 20, 30 years, there's going to need to be a repository for more than just Northern stuff. You know, and there's going to need to be a repository for things across the UP. Yeah. Or you're going and, to have um, to say, you know, I think you were talking earlier about a certain parallel, 42 or 47 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Just say that's the defining line and everything above that is what we care about. And go into some of these small towns because even the small towns, their historical societies, their genealogical societies are evaporating over time. They are. It's 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 a real it's it's a huge challenge because I talk to historical societies, you know, different groups, and I, I speak at historical society dinners and have done advocacy work for historical society. I got an email today from the historical society that wants to meet with me to talk about their future and give them some advice and some guidance and. You know, one of the things that I always tell them is that you need to get younger generations involved in what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's not just so that they care about what you do and they become members, but also because they have skills that you need. You know, you have people in their 20s and 30s in your community who are really computer savvy. They know how to run spreadsheets and they know how to use uh, Photoshop. and canva and all these things and they're much more sophisticated than we are you know at these things and you need to start tapping these resources of people and and school-age people not just to you know come and see what you have but to actually be involved in developing what you do because not only are they your future they have skills skills you need and and sometimes it's just as simple as being able to format a proper label for an artifact and and put it in front of the artifact without taping it onto the artifact, you know, which I see sometimes because, you know, that's the skill that the person who's doing, that's what they knew how to do, you know. And so to me, it's it's, you know, they need to get these younger generations involved in helping preserve their their heritage not waiting until they're retired to do so, which it oftentimes seems to be the way it works. It's just like, well, I'm retired. Now I can be involved at the Heritage Center. Yeah. You know, it's you got to get them before that and uh, and make use of the skills that they have and, and build their support in your community. 
That's one of the things um, we're trying to do on this podcast is appeal to younger folks and get them interested in sharing their skills and volunteering, even if it's for, you know, an hour a week, just something to, because you have now AI skills that are coming to bear, mm-hmm. right? So Absolutely. And, and, and it's all changing, you know, and who's to say 20 years from now, 30 years from now, how much different it's going to be, you know? Yeah. And, and, and by that time, the retirees who are running these places, like guys like me, <laughs> you know, will, uh, you know, we will have skills that the people who are running them now might not have. Though, you know, I, I don't want to just say blanket-wise that these folks don't. I, I'm amazed at some of the groups and what they're able to do and their ambitions. And um, so no, it's, I, a, it's I, a wide swath. I see that in talking with historical and genealogical societies all across the U.S. But you're, you're absolutely right. There's a, there's a wide swath that sort of seem to want to stay under the radar and not get out there and they want to collect and they want to share but they don't really want to embrace technology and that that for me is a problem yeah it's it is a problem and and i also too one of the things i talk about with folks is you know i can go from one historical society to another in the UP, in other parts of the Midwest, even across the United States. And I can see the same displays in every one of them. Mm. There's the Victorian parlor. There's the blacksmith shop. There's the one-room schoolhouse. Right. There is the military room, which is mostly uniforms from guys who went off to fight in wars. And... Those are all important things to say, but what you don't see is the story of that community. It's it's focused on, well, we've got a bunch of blacksmith equipment, so let's make a blacksmith shop. <laughs> right. And I'm a big collections guy. I love artifacts. But what I encourage them to do is think more about narrative, more about your story. What makes your community unique? What do you want to tell about your, your community? that makes you unique to any other town or place. And also, too, your history didn't stop at 1950. You've had a whole history since then in the second half of the 20th century that needs to be told. And other than having some uniforms from Vietnam and the Gulf War, most of your collection doesn't reflect the second half of the 20th century at all. Yeah, agreed. And you need to think more about contemporary collecting and the material culture of the last 50 years, now 70 years, whatever, because, you you know, for so long, as, and part of the reason up here is that for a lot of communities, their heyday was from, you know, 1880 to 1950. And then after that, things kind of went wrong. And... So the feeling is there isn't a good story to tell. There isn't a happy story to tell. Mm. So they're so focused on their heyday and the material culture surrounding that that they don't, they're not thinking past that. And and I so I, I always push for people to really, for institutions to think beyond those parameters that were set up and have just kind of been set in stone. You know, what can you create that's different, that's 
isn't just, you know, a display of all of your, um, you know, dishes <laughs> that you have. That is some good advice, Dan. Good advice. You know, it, what, where's the context? Where's the meaning behind things? Because that's, that's how I approach exhibits. We oftentimes create exhibits where we have none of the artifacts to tell the story. And so we go out and find them, either on loan or otherwise, or we don't. We just tell the story without the artifacts. Because to me, it starts with the story. And then we go and find the things to help tell that story. And, and I wish sometimes that we had more material culture in our collection to be able to tell the stories that we want to tell. But if I'm limited to that, then I'm not covering a lot of things that I think are really important. Yeah. I had one historical society that I believe it was in Kansas, but I could be wrong. Might have been in Iowa. But uh, a lot of small towns in the county were closing down and their historical societies were closing down and so on. And they went out and got a number of promotional materials like T-shirts and I think it was T-shirts with their logo and that kind of thing on it. And they went to the small towns especially the ones that were closing down and they met with the people that lived there at the time and said, you know, when the city hall in your town closed down, those records had to go somewhere. And whoever has those, please consider donating it to us because we'll take care of it. And it turns mm -hmm. out they got quite a number of artifacts and records and so on from people's basements that way. Yeah, and that we talk about the same thing uh, here at the university with our archives, especially of helping people understand that you know if you give those if you donate those things to here, one you know we'll take care of them far better than you and your kids and your grandkids will take care of it. Yeah. You know, two you'll always be able to come visit it. You know, <laughs> it's not it's not all of a sudden. You know, you can't have access to it. In fact, the whole idea is for anyone to have access to it. And so, you know, it's really getting people to understand that we want those things. I mean, there are certain things we're not going to want. And and there are superfluous and, you know, we just don't need another one of those or it's it's information that is irrelevant. You know, there are certain things that, you know, we don't need all of the local newspapers because they're all on microfilm already and mm. been digitized. and. So we, you know, we're just not saving old newspapers like we used to. But it's convincing people to, and reminding them on campus. I do it all the time. I, I, I tell people in offices, hey, if you're getting rid of stuff, let us know first. We might want some of it. And so we do. We get, I get calls and emails from people saying, hey, we're getting rid of this. Do you want it? Sure. We'll take it. Fantastic. You know, or now we have five of those. We don't need another one. <laughs> so. Oftentimes, people don't understand the kinds of things that you want. They'll always say, well, what do you want? I'm like, who knows? Yeah. Let us, let us know what you have, and then we'll go from there and decide yes or no, or yes or no, or, or we'll take it all. You know, I mean, I don't know. We want, we want to represent the material culture of the Upper Peninsula in our collection. And if that is somebody's snowshoes or somebody's homemade, you know, ice fishing equipment or something, yeah, well, we'd like that kind of stuff. That's you know, it, it didn't, it, it, what someone's junk might be a treasure to us, you know. Absolutely. Now, Dan and listeners, I'd like to provide you with the contact information for 
the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. You can find them on their website at nmu.edu slash b-e-a-u-m-i-e-r Beaumere Heritage Center. The Beaumere Heritage Center right now is located in Grease Hall, G-R-I-E-S, Grease Hall, at the corner of 7th Street and Tracy Avenue on the campus of Northern Michigan University. You can call them at 906-227-3212. You can email them at heritage at nmu.edu. You can find them on Facebook at NMU. And you can visit, and I hope you do visit, 1401 Prescue Isle Avenue, Marquette, Michigan, in Marquette. Okay, that all sound right, Dan? Sounds right. The address is actually the university's address, so don't go to that. That's why we put our location, describe our location, because we're not allowed to have our own address on campus. <laughs> oh, okay. So I always tell people to go down, go to a corner of Tracy and, and 7th Street, and that, that's the easiest way to, to, uh, to find us. But if you're going to mail anything to us, mail it to that other address, and we'll, we'll get it. Okay, got it. Thank you for that explanation. I appreciate that. Now, Dan, can you kindly share with the audience an overview of the communities you serve and the mission and objectives of the center? Yeah, well, I think our first community is the university community, and and specifically for the students and the faculty, by creating exhibitions and, and public programming that they can take advantage of for extending the educational mission of the university. The second is is the local community, the Marquette community, because that's the, the people who we can reach the easiest and and are most interested in what we're doing and tends to track more towards an older audience, unfortunately. <laughs> but actually, it's it's one point. When, when we started the, the Heritage Center and started doing exhibits, a lot of people would say, hey, you know, are you getting, you know, you should get more school kids. You should get more school kids. And, and, I, and my answer to that was we have three history museums in town that are already getting all the school kids and have been for decades. What we need to do is focus on the older audience. And so our exhibits are not really kid-friendly exhibits. Sometimes we have aspects that kids really enjoy, like we have this huge Voyager canoe on display right now. But our exhibits tend to trend towards an older audience, an educated audience, an adult audience, and and to some extent, a college-educated audience or a college audience. And I like that because I think it's an alternative to a lot of museums that, you know, feel that they have to because of the, and it's a great thing that they're doing this, but are focused on school-age kids, in particular third grade, which is the, the grade in Michigan where kids learn about Michigan history and local history. You know, we're not held back, by, we're not held to that. And I think it's important. With that said, I get third grade groups coming through every year. So <laughs> some of the things we do, they just are fascinated by and they come and I, I tailor a program for them specifically, even though the exhibit may be way over their heads because of the amount of, you know, research involved and just stories that we're telling. So uh, those are our real communities. But you know, with the internet and just the ability to reach anyone, I mean, we have audiences around the world now through our online 
events, programming, and uh, and resources that we have on our website. So, you know, we are reaching broader audiences all the time, even if we aren't intending to, we're reaching them. And and like I said before, our mission is to celebrate the history and culture of the UP. But I, I've also been thinking about the word celebrate because it tends to mean that it's only good stuff. And sometimes our exhibitions deal with controversial issues and challenge the paradigms of our, our historical paradigms. And I think that's really important to do. And being on a university campus, we have a little more freedom to do that. Even talking about the the history of the university, sometimes we can be a little more critical because we um, our funding actually comes from an endowment, so it's not funded by the university per se. So we have a, a you know scholarly freedom to do that and and to deal with some difficult issues that other institutions may not be able to do so because of their support from the community. Yeah, that's good. So you know, celebrate. I've often thought about us reevaluating whether we want that to be the mission and thinking about that mission a little bit deeper of what we do. Well, that's fantastic, Dan. Thank you for that. Sure. What's coming up on the horizon for the museum? Are there any upcoming exhibitions or events that the community should look forward to? Yeah, well, we have in March, we have a couple of things. One is that we'll be opening a new exhibit that's being funded by the Michigan Humanities Council on extraordinary women of the UP. And uh, I have a committee we met today and uh, we're developing right now of identifying women who we want to feature in the exhibit. Our goal is to feature at least two women from each county in the Upper Peninsula and really focus at, at really highlighting women who have made big contributions to their communities, to the region, to the state, even nationally and internationally who are from the Upper Peninsula or came here to the UP and made a difference and tell stories about women beyond just, you know, how often women are left out in history and the study of history and just the impact that they have. So that's an exhibit we'll be opening up and then that's going to tour the Upper Peninsula going into libraries and schools starting next year. And then uh, uh, we have a concert with a Scottish folk rock band called Scaryvore in March, which is part of an event called the Winter Roots Festival. This was something we created with the Hiawatha Traditional Music Festival, a winter festival of music, because we felt there needed to be more cultural activities in the wintertime to uh, get people out, especially in March when people start to get a little scary crazy. So those are two events that we have planned for March. And the big thing for us, too, is the 125th anniversary of the university is this fall. And so we are planning a number of exhibits and public programs to celebrate the 125th anniversary of the university. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I like that you're adult-focused for educated folks. There's enough children's focus on the other museums. That's very cool. Um, yeah, it was really important to me when I got here. There was a lot of concern from other museums in the area when they founded the Heritage Center that it was going to, you know, draw audiences and funding away from those institutions. Wow. And so it was really important to me to develop relationships with those other museums right away and talk about what we could do to supplement and that would be different and would define us from them. And also to, to get, help them understand that we weren't we weren't looking to get a bunch of donated money from local donors that 
you know, that wasn't our goal. We had a source of funding. But how could we work together on projects, which we have, but also how could we do things to supplement or, you know, just fill in the gaps? And what could our mission be that was different? So it was really important. And I felt that that was one of them, was that, you know, we're not going to go after the, the you know, third grade audience. Nothing against that, but they're already doing that. Yeah. So, you know, let them do that. We'll do our thing and it'll be good for everybody. So, Dan, you've got more people coming into the area. You've got cultural preservation and heritage preservation that has to happen as change occurs in the area. How do you envision the museum's role in the community evolving in the coming years? Well, I think it's really important for us to be an advocate for, in particular, not just heritage preservation, but heritage tourism in the region. Because we've already seen in parts of the UP that have embraced heritage tourism uh, a huge impact on those communities. A place like Calumet. Calumet is this, this mining town in the Keweenaw Peninsula that at one time had a population of over almost 40,000 people. Now it's a population of less than 2,000 people. And it has some of this infrastructure of a town of 40,000, some of the buildings and things that are there. It's just incredible. And back in the late 1980s, the National Park Service developed the Kiwana National Historic Park, which really, even though they haven't done all the work, it really created this core effort to preserve the heritage of the region. And now there are all of these nonprofit historical organizations in the Kiwana that are working in conjunction with the National Park Service. And it has developed this strong heritage tourism in the region, which, you know, combined with the recreational tourism, which is huge in the UP and really a driving force of our economy, has just expanded that and has really been a major part of the revitalization of towns like Calumet. I'd like to see that in more and more across the Upper Peninsula. There's communities, I think, that could do a better job in in presenting their history and 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 getting people to visit because they want to learn more about the place. Or that when they do visit, that they learn more about the place than just, you know, where the waterfalls are or the beach or, you know, where they're skiing. So and I think it's that's something, a role that I would like to help play more in the UP in general is just the advocacy for heritage tourism and preservation, which go hand in hand. We have a very active and excellent regional history center in Marquette. So the Marquette County Historical Society had an expansion and uh, now are the Marquette Regional History Center, and they do bus tours around Marquette every year. Oh, cool. Uh, in fact, with with role players, and um, and then we have the Maritime Heritage Museum in Marquette that does tours of the lighthouse and, and the history, the maritime history. So that's the thing. We have these other organizations who are doing some of these things, and it's been a huge draw. And what I would like to do more of is tours around the UP. Oh, right. And maybe have more, um, you know, bus tours and things where you can take people to more far-fledged places that they might not go themselves, you know. You know, a backwoods tour or, uh, you know, a ghost town tour. I did a ghost town tour once with people, and it was a lot of fun, and and people loved it. So I I would like to do more and more stuff like that. The hard part is just finding the time to plan and and do all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, maybe someday we'll be able to do more of those things. That would be way cool. So since it's on campus, 
Is the museum reserved only for students and faculty to attend? No, no, we are open to the public. We are free and open to the public. And it's it's something that we, we're not the only people on campus, but that we, in, in a way, are challenged with is that some people believe that, that, you know, our museums, our theater, our, you know, concerts are only for the campus community and, and nothing could be further from the truth. We want the larger community to come and be a part of what we do. And so, uh, you know, I'm always telling people that, you know, I, whenever I do a TV interview and they say, is there anything else you want to say? I say, yeah, we want the community to come here. It's not just for people on campus. If it were, we wouldn't have much support and we wouldn't get many people to come in. So it's really important that we have people from the community embracing what we do and, and being a part of what we do. Yeah, come on down. Absolutely. Dan, what are some of the most memorable moments or experiences visitors have shared after visiting the museum? Well, I think about specific exhibitions that we've done. We did one a couple of years ago called the Decolonizing Experience. And the whole idea was to tell the history of the Anishinaabe of this region, the Native Americans, from their perspective. And that included not only just their past, but their present and celebration, but also a discussion of difficult topics and things. And the response that we received from that was was hugely you know, favorable. In fact, that exhibit has been expanded to include a section on the boarding schools in the area and, and is going to be touring the UP. And the response that we received from people was just, you know, huge because this was a history that they didn't know existed. They didn't know the depth of the history of the Native Americans of this region and the things that happened to to them, you know, over time. And it was uh, just the responses. It, it was it was a very powerful thing to have that kind of dialogue. And it was difficult stuff. It was challenging stuff. And that's what I wanted to to happen here. I wanted us to be able to deal with difficult issues and have dialogue with people, and but also it would be a safe place for people to come and, and experience these things. Yeah, that's and, very uh, important. Have a safe space where you can have a conversation. Yeah, that's what museums should be. It shouldn't just be a place where you come and look at old stuff on display. It should be a place of dialogue and and sharing of ideas and uh, and a discussion of you know the difficult and, and the not difficult. You know, our exhibits tend to go back and forth. They, they sometimes are purely nostalgic and just fun. And sometimes they are uh, deal with more difficult issues and challenging things. And then, and that's good. It should be both. What I think our most popular exhibit was we did an exhibit on ghost towns in the Upper Peninsula, which there are a lot of ghost towns. And that was a great experience because you had people coming in just saying, oh yeah, I grew up in that town. <laughs> And, and instead of them being offended, they're like, yeah, it's a ghost town now, you know, and that dialogue of what that means and, and what it says about these places in the UP and how it's changed over time. And just the, you know, the stories that came out about communities and people and places was, you know, was, it was priceless. Absolutely. Dan, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's time for us to take a break for a few minutes. Sure. 
All right, listeners, we'll be right back after a few fantastic messages. enthusiasts and adventure seekers. Brace yourselves for a journey through time at the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. The heartbeat of history right in Marquette. Imagine unlocking the secrets of the past, creating memories that will last. Now picture yourself making it happen. Volunteer at the Beaumere Center and be part of a mission to bring history to life for you and your family. Everyone's invited to dive into the rich tapestry of the Upper Peninsula's heritage. From captivating exhibitions to relaxing cultural programs, the Bomer Center is your gateway to a world where history comes alive. Curious? Visit nmu.edu slash Heritage Center to uncover the wonderful experiences waiting for you. This isn't just a museum, it's your ticket to understanding about the Upper Peninsula. Head over to 1401 Press Q Isle Avenue, Marquette, Michigan, right on the Northern Michigan University campus. In Grease Hall at the corner of 7th Street and Tracy Avenue, the Bomer Center awaits your discovery. Need more details? Call 906-227-3212 or shoot them an email at heritage at nmu.edu. They're ready to answer your questions and fuel your curiosity. From history buffs to music lovers, there's something for everyone at the Bomer Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. So, what are you waiting for? Make today historic. Visit the Bomer UP Heritage Center and let the adventure begin. Open your mind, open the door, step into history's embrace at the Bomer Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. See you there. Let me try to get to sleep this way. Not really all that tired yet. Hmm. Can't stop wondering. I wonder how much of Main Street was destroyed during the fire in 1962 when our family's cleaning store burned down. Hmm. I wonder if mom and dad know anything about how our town got its name. I'll ask mom tomorrow. Maybe a weekend trip to the Historical Society with the kids. Might be a good chance for them to volunteer. Ah, oh, I think I'll paint the bedroom a grayish blue. That'll be nice and soothing. It's more of a 19th century color, like I saw at the museum. I sure would like to know more about Cedar Falls, Iowa. I'm pretty sure I saw an episode on preservationoaks.podbean.com about that. The ocean sounds are supposed to make you sleep, but you don't feel sleepy, you're wide awake with curiosity. Indulge your curiosity by listening to the Preservation Oaks podcast. <sighs> it's gonna be alright. You'll get what you want. More Preservation Oaks instead of ocean sounds.
This is Sean Thomas Radcliffe. Welcome to another episode of Preservation Oaks. In this series, we introduce you to professionals from museums, cultural, genealogical, and historical societies across the United States. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the program. All right. That's much better. Hello. If you're craving a sense of accomplishment and self-respect, then look no further than by helping yourself and your community by learning more about volunteering with the museums, historical, and genealogical societies in your area. It's important to find a source of information that keeps you up to date about these valuable societies. The Right Choice is a program that's done the research for you, and that's where Preservation Oaks comes in. Every episode presents you with an all-inclusive experience with one of our nation's museums, historical, and genealogical societies that we refer to as our Preservation Oaks. The wrong choice results in you just getting a short introduction to the organization and leaving you right where you started which is not knowing enough to make that commitment to help yourself and your community by supporting a society. Listen to Preservation Oaks, providing a bi-weekly series of programs with a variety of museums, historical, and genealogical society guests. Rather than just giving you a too brief introduction to the society, we spend the time to have fun and give you the history and the stories behind the society. What valuable services they offer to their members and the public, how they provide value to the community, and most importantly, how you can get involved and help. On Preservation Oaks, you'll get all the information you need to accelerate and lock in your decision to volunteer, support, visit, and become a member. You'll be glad you did. Remember, you can always send us comments and suggestions to preservationoaks at gmail.com. This is Tom Spindler from the Norman Borlaug Heritage Foundation in Cresco, Iowa. I had a lot of fun as a guest on Preservation Oaks. This is Sandra Bankston, the president of the Fremont County Historical Society, and I love listening to Preservation Oaks on MicroStream Radio. This is Ron Wanamaker, the president of Preservation Burlington, and you're listening to Preservation Oaks. And now, back to Preservation Oaks. back to Preservation Oaks. I'm your host Sean Thomas Radcliffe and we're here today with Mr. Dan Truckee, the director of the Bowmere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center located in Marquette, Michigan. Dan, I've been having a great time thanks to you. I very much appreciate you being here. Let's pick up where we left off. Sure. Now you've mentioned a couple of them, but what kinds of exhibits are on display? Well, currently we have an exhibition on display about an expedition that took place in 1820 through the Upper Great Lakes, and it was organized by General well, Governor Lewis Cass. He was the governor, the territorial governor of Michigan at the time. And it looks at the expedition and the importance it played in the development of the 
of the state and the Upper Peninsula and the impact that it had. So that's our current exhibit that will be closing this Saturday, their last day. It's been up since September. It's been very successful and it's had a lot of just a visitation and, and great attention in the public. So, and it deals with some really challenging issues, but I think it, it's been a very successful exhibit. Oh, very cool. Do you have any collections exhibited anywhere else? We do. We have in, in the Dome Stadium here on campus, we have several display areas and we have a number of artifacts, some dealing with the athletic history of the university, but also with some of the most famous individuals from the Upper Peninsula. And one of them is Glenn Seaborg, who was born and raised in Ishpeming, went on to win the Nobel Prize for chemistry. And we have a display, some of these things on display at the Superior Dome, but then we have a Seaborg Center on campus and we have a display that we, we manage there as well of things from his collection, which he donated to the university. So those are the kind of permanent displays if we have any permanent displays on campus. Well, very cool. Now, you also have some exhibits on tour, I was reading. Yeah, we do. We, we, we've had several that have toured over the years. We will be touring the one, uh, the Extraordinary Women, when it closes sometime later this fall. We have one, the Native American Decolonizing Exhibit, which will be just started going on tour. And then we've had others that, you know, have been on tour and have not been on tour for a while, but uh, in particular, one about the uh, the making of the anatomy of a murder, uh, the book, the movie, which was uh, based on a book uh, written here in Marquette County and a story about Marquette County by a local author. And, and uh, it's a very important history to the local community of this film was shot here and Jimmy Stewart was in it and and it's based on a Market County story it's it's a that exhibit is toured all over and uh, even gone downstate in the lower Michigan oh very cool I'll have to go on YouTube and see if I can find that movie I expect was made in the 50s maybe 1959 it was a, a nominated for Academy Award for best film oh very cool now I was reading you also on your website have online exhibitions we do. We have a lot of online exhibitions. Some of them we, we put together during COVID because we weren't able to create physical exhibits. So we took a number of uh, displays, the the interpretive panels, and we converted them into PDFs. So they're not real web exhibits, but they it's a PDF that you can scroll through and, and see the interpretive panels. So the one we don't have is the anatomy of a murder because a lot of the photographs in it are uh, property of Sony pictures. So uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we didn't quite have the funds to buy the rights to uh, put that online. So um, that one, unfortunately is not online, but uh, the uh, these other ones uh, are ones that we created and have created online versions of. Very cool. And students were involved in creating these online exhibitions. Some of them, yes. Some of them, then not only just the research and writing and things, but also the design of the website. Some of them were done by students. Very nice. And then you did some kind of a display at the historic Ironwood Theater. Yeah, that's one of them. We did an exhibit about alpine skiing in the UP last winter, and many of the resorts are in Gogebic County, where Ironwood is located, and and people there 
asked if we could have it on display because they weren't able to see it in Marquette. So I, I, you know, the Ironwood Theater has this wonderful lobby that they said, yeah, you could put it up here. So I redesigned it and installed it a couple weeks ago there. Fantastic. So you can see that, folks, there at Ironwood, mm-hmm. Michigan. Okay. Dan, I asked this question of everyone. If your building were to catch fire, what things would you grab on your way out? Not many of the things we have in our collection are have massive monetary value. But I, I think about the, the cultural value of some of the things that we have are, are pretty important. And in particular, we have a, a hat. It is a Stetson hat that was given by, to Glenn Seaborg by Lyndon Baines Johnson when he was president. Oh, cool. Glenn Seaborg was the chair of the Atomic Energy Commission at the time. And as a gift, he gave him a Stetson hat, which he did to a lot of people. And I always think of that. It's one of those artifacts that I'm just like, yeah, you know, that's that's one I'd want to save. Another is this strange thing. It is a sign from when the Dallas Cowboys came to campus to do their summer training. They did their summer camp at the university once in the early 60s, and they made these painted signs for the community to publicize the camp so people would come and watch. And, and we have two of them <laughs> in the collection. Oh, cool. And I think they're about as valuable as anything we have in the collection if we wanted to sell one of them. Oh, yeah. People would love <laughs> We've those. actually talked about it. These hand-painted Dallas Cowboy signs from the early 1960s for their camp are probably as valuable as anything we have in the collection monetarily. Oh, wow. So I would say one of those because they might help us to rebuild after <laughs> after the fire but you know we have documents signed by presidents of the united states and dignitaries for some of the people whose collections we have and um and so yeah there from a cultural standpoint there's some really important artifacts that i would want to save i'd be hard pressed to just grab a few things because there are so many things i would just get bogged down in. i think you'd have to grab some of the students and have them start grabbing stuff. <laughs> well, we, we need to work on our emergency plan. We don't really have a, an emergency plan. We should. And it's something that I've talked about with my collections manager that we need to develop one to identify what some of these artifacts would be. If we needed to get something, we need to identify what those things would be. Yeah. Every museum should have that. And right now we don't. So thanks for reminding me. Okay. You're welcome. <laughs> When people of the public, and the public is welcome, you mentioned, and you want the public, the entire county and state of Michigan should come and visit the Beaumont UP Heritage Center. When they come, is there a, a admission fee? No, we are free and open to the public. The only things we charge for are some occasional events, uh, like concerts and things, where we're bringing in an artist from outside the area, then then we'll charge. But other than that, all of our stuff is free to the public. Boy, that's that's such a value. That's such great work you're doing. Thank you. What kinds of records or historical artifacts has the center received as donations from the public? Well, a lot of our donations actually are internal transfers from departments within the university. And we haven't received a ton of donations from people in the community because partly being a good partner with other historical societies, when people will call me, I'll often ask, is there a historical society in your own town that might 
be more interested in this. And oftentimes they never even thought of that because I think that an artifact that has an importance to a particular community probably should stay there. It might have more meaning than being coming here and being stuck in our storage and never, never see the light of day. Right. But at the same time, sometimes there are artifacts that would be better that would be here just because we can care for it maybe better than a local historical society could. Or it has a value that we see is really important to our mission. So, yeah, I mean, we actually just received a huge donation from the Seaborg family. Glenn Seaborg's children are still around, and they donated about 50 medals that he had collected over the years, including his Nobel Prize to the university and and to ultimately to the Heritage Center uh, because we we will be the repository for those medals, except the Nobel Prize. It's so valuable that it's it's actually held by our public safety office here on campus in a safe. Yeah. But the others we just, you know, we have and we've put several of them on display at our display over at the Seaborg Center. So that was a major donation from his family. So we do occasionally get things like that, and uh, but we aren't actively collecting from the general public just because of storage capabilities and staff being able to keep up with it. A Nobel Prize—that's really something. Wow. Yeah. Well, when we started doing research about what it potentially could fetch on the open market, it was pretty scary. Wow. Does your center capture oral interviews? No, we do not in an organized way. I occasionally interview people for research projects that I'm doing on exhibitions or articles and things, but we don't have an active oral history program, but occasionally it happens. Okay. I was reading you're working together to document COVID-19 experiences. Yeah, actually it's collaboration with both our university archives and the local library and the history center here in town to document those experiences. We haven't really, our role was primarily to collect material culture related to um, to COVID. And we've had some things triple in. In fact, we had something donated today, but uh, there hasn't been a lot through that. And I don't know how many oral histories or personal stories people have collected either. Th- this was something that when COVID took place, Museums across the country recognize this is something we need to document. And now even nationally, the uh, Library of Congress started uh, a funding an oral history project for this. But we also found that once COVID kind of, I mean, it's still with us, obviously, but once the, the panic kind of subsided after a couple of years, people wanted to forget about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so there, it's like it's now in the past. And so I think it's something in the coming years that we're going to have to really remind people, hey, this happened and we want to collect these things. Uh, Because I think everybody's instinct now is to just put it behind them and move forward and they don't want to revisit it. Especially if you lost people. If you lost people in particular, but um, I think people just are so relieved that we're, you know, we're not in the thick of it anymore that, you know, it's hard for them to go back to it. And um we also did, wanted to wait until it did subside to tr- start collecting the material culture because it was still being used by people, medical equipment, masks, various material culture that was related to it. So, you know, it's it's something that now the time is ripe for us to really push it a little stronger than we have been. Yeah, very interesting. I wish you much luck at that. Thanks.
What kinds of volunteer opportunities does the center have for the public? You know, we, we haven't done a lot of volunteering with the public. I had one for a few years that was just fantastic, and and uh, she's now retired from volunteering. But so much of my focus has been on the students, getting them experience as volunteers and as interns, even as student employees, because I think that really is our our mandate. And the other museums in town have a lot more support from volunteers in the community which is really important. We haven't had much call to have volunteers from the general community for the center. Down the line, though, I can see that changing as as we grow, that we might need more support, especially maybe in working with collections and and if we do want to do more interpretation and, and actual docent work. Because right now we don't really have guides in the museums. They're kind of self-touring, so... We may want to expand that in the future. They may need to have more volunteers from the general community. But right now, I really focus on getting the students that experience. Okay. Listeners, I'd like to provide you with the contact information for the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center once again. Their website is nmu.edu slash Heritage Center. They are located at 1401 Prescue Isle Avenue, Marquette, Michigan. But you have to go in Grease Hall at the corner of 7th Street and Tracy Avenue on the campus of Northern Michigan University. Their phone number is 906-227-3212. You can email them at heritage at nmu.edu. You can find them on Facebook at NMU. That all sound right? That all sounds right. Okay. Thanks for explaining that earlier. What kinds of things are available to see and do on the center's website? Well, like I mentioned, you know, we talked about earlier, we have a number of online exhibits uh, that people can visit. We also have a website that we created a couple of years ago and then we're starting to expand, which is about the relationship between the Upper Peninsula and Northern Michigan University. It was funded by a separate donor who really felt that we needed to do a better job in highlighting how the Upper Peninsula formed the culture of the UP and its people really defined Northern Michigan University and what it became, and vice versa, how Northern has helped define the Upper Peninsula and has had a huge impact on the UP. So that's what the website is dedicated to and, and looking at that relationship. And there's a lot of wonderful articles in there about different aspects of the university's history and and we're continuing to add to it and that's the goal is for it to be a living website and then soon we'll have one um there's a companion to the uh boarding native american boarding school exhibit and decolonization exhibit that's going to be going live very soon so and there'll be links to all of those on our main website so that's a good way for people to connect Another thing, too, is we just ask people to friend us on Facebook. That's the best way to get updates about what we're up to. Okay, fantastic. Yeah, I noticed this new portion of your website going up called Together We Grow. Is that Mm -hmm. one of them that you were mentioning? Yeah, that was the one about the relationship of the Upper Peninsula and Northern. Yeah. Okay, yeah, your website's really nice. You can do a lot of things on it, has a lot of content, and it's growing and, and getting better every day. Thank you. 
Can you tell the audience about any current initiatives or needs of the center that you really want people in your area to know about and support? I think I mentioned this earlier, and that is in, and that is in really looking at our, our physical community or the structures on our campus and in the general community of really having an attitude of preservation. For too long, you know, the attitude is that things are disposable and we can just get rid of them and build something new. And our university in particular has been negatively impacted with that attitude. You know, we need to change that, that kind of idea. There's always going to be change and new things that are good, but just because something is old or something is seems outdated doesn't mean that that's true. And, or, and I always tell people, you know, if you think about 50 years from now, what are people going to wish 50 years from now is still here today, you know? Don't just think about it in today's terms, think about it 50 years from now. And when you do that, you realize that things that you might think are passe or outdated will actually, to others, look very cool and very historic and be like, God, I'm glad they saved that. And that's something that I'd really like people to support more is that whole idea of preservation and attitude of preservation not just because things are aesthetically beautiful, because some things aren't. A lot of the mid-century modern buildings that we have on campus and in our communities, we don't think of as aesthetically beautiful, but they're interesting. And we'll, we'll want examples of those in the future to tell our story, be a part of our story. So I, I think that's a big part of it is just having an attitude of preservation in our community. That's something I like people to really support more. Yep. Thank you for that. What are your thoughts about how best to keep history and community support flourishing for the current generation, the K through 12 kids? Getting them involved, just getting them involved, getting that education. You know, we have third graders who learn about local history and then it just seems to stop, you know, and I'm always working with other grade levels to try to get them to understand that, you know, your high school class would get a lot of, lot out of this. And it's hard to fit it in because they're structured. They're so structured in what the, they can teach. Then there's the expense of getting students bused across town. And, you know, it's, it's getting them to understand that the local history has a national story as well. And especially the mining history is so connected to the Industrial Revolution in the United States. It's a national story. And how can we it's something that we should be having all grade levels and some level involved in learning about these things. And I think that's it. It, it, It's, it's just getting young people exposed to this stuff at at a younger age. I think that's, that's the, that's the key, but it's also families, you know, my family, that's what we did. We got in the station wagon and we drove to, you know, colonial Williamsburg and we drove to Mackinac Island and, uh, and forts and went to history museums and stuff. And it's, it starts at home too, you know, get, take your kids out, take your grandkids on the road, you know, show them America, show them what's, what's there. Um, I think that's really important. Yep. I think that's really important. Plus Michigan was one of those States that was the, the industrial heartland of the world war II production um, Absolutely. That won the war. So a lot of those mining and all of the industrialization of the Upper Peninsula, you know, that that helped win the war and send supplies to 
create all of the airplanes and so on and so forth, I would imagine. And it was, it was that way since the Civil War. You know, it, it's, it's hard to fathom the impact that, it, that the United States had access to these huge reserves of iron ore and copper here in the Upper Peninsula, northern Wisconsin and Minnesota. If we hadn't had those resources, how would that have impacted our ability to arm us and to support a war effort? Yeah it would have been very, very difficult. It's It was hugely important in wartime. And and in addition to just the Industrial Revolution, building the railroads, building, you know, the infrastructure, the all the steel-girdered buildings across the country were essential to getting iron ore uh, to do that. Yeah. You know, a lot of it came from Michigan. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So what's the best way for people to connect with someone at the center if they have questions? Well, you gave the contact information, and uh, I, I I respond pretty quickly to phone calls and emails directly to the center, and that that's usually the best way for people to get a hold of us. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Dan, is there any other information or message you'd like the community or members to know about? You know, I mentioned this before. We we are open to the public. It's always a challenge to get people to campus. We want to see people. We want them to feel welcome. I think also to history and the arts are always in this challenge that people think, oh, they're not important or they don't need, they don't need support. You know, why, why do, why do my tax dollars go to museums? Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, 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 you know, and just say, you know, they change lives. They change lives. They change perspectives. They, they create opportunities, you know, for learning, but also for careers. Uh, and I've been so fortunate to have a career in this field that has created so many experiences for me. And I've been able to share that with other people and, and have an impact on their lives. And it's, it's something that is beyond dollars and cents. And uh, so, yeah, I, I just, I always have to remind people it's important. We need to do this work. It is important. I can't tell you how many times I've been standing in a museum looking at something and just, in awe, just looking at it going, oh my God, somebody actually made that or somebody painted that or, you know, whatever it is, and just in awe of its history and its grandeur. I, you know, I sometimes get kind of jaded by my work and, and I've seen, have you know, been involved with and I've seen so many things in my life that, in my career that I, you know, I can get kind of blasé about it. The last spring I was in Nashville and I went to the Country Music Hall of Fame and I'm just geeking out on all the guitars and all this stuff. And I get to the end of the museum where a lot of the actual Hall of Fame plaques are and all that. And right in the center of this room or around then the backside of it is a painting by Thomas Harpin of his history of country music, which I've seen pictures of for a long time in books and online. And I was just absolutely, I was just frozen because it was there, yeah. the real painting. And looking at this and going up to it and looking at the detail and just, it's what we call the museum effect that you can't get anywhere else of being in the presence of something like that that has such great historical value and meaning. 
you know, that's why I do what I do. It's why I got into this business is to have those kind of experiences and create them for other people. Yeah. Beautiful. That's a beautiful moment. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. And thank you for spending time with us today. It's thank been, you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. I had a great time. You have a really fantastic center there, and you're doing a great job of helping the community and educating the students. I really appreciate your work. Not only that, but it's a really beautiful museum. Well, thank you. We, we hope people will come and check us out. And with that, we'll end our time with our guest, Mr. Dan Truckee, the director of the Bowmere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center located in Marquette, Michigan. Listeners, please stay tuned for my comments and wrap-up, which is coming up next. Thanks for joining us for this episode as we explore the unique and captivating essence of Marquette, Michigan, the broader Upper Peninsula, and the Bowmere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center. As we've delved into the region's rugged landscapes, rich history, and vibrant cultures, it's been gratifying to learn that Marquette stands as a haven just minutes away from wilderness. In a world witnessing rapid development and the loss of cultural identity, Marquette County holds on to its sense of place and heritage. There's a palpable difference in the Upper Peninsula, a raw and authentic reality that connects its residents to the land. Dan's call to bury utility lines underground echoes the community's commitment to preserving the unique character of this northern wonderland. For those seeking recreation, Marquette County offers a journey into the past with visits to old mining towns and exploration along the Iron Ore Heritage Trail. Ghost towns dotting the landscape serve as poignant reminders of the region's storied history. We had the pleasure of hearing from Dan Truckee, deeply involved in the annual folk music festivals that breathe life into the area. His passion mirrors the resilience and creativity found in the people of the area. Winter, which can be the winnowing time, spans six months each year, and embracing the season is a must for mental health. From dog sled races to outhouse races, the annual events bring the community together in a celebration of the unique challenges and joys that winter brings. Two Heike Lunta events per year pay homage to the Finnish god of snow, an exclusive tradition to the Upper Peninsula. The tapestry of cultures in the Upper Peninsula is vast and diverse, from Finnish and French-Canadian to Scandinavian, Italian, Croatian, and the influence of English Cornish miners seen in the beloved pasties served in local restaurants.
Only two mines remain from the mid-19th century mining boom, serving as reminders of the region's industrial history. As I conclude this episode, I can't help but feel a yearning to be an honorary youper, embracing the spirit of Marquette and the Upper Peninsula. I hope you all feel the same. Dan educated us that the story of this land began with the native people of the three fires, the Ojibwa, Ottawa, and Potawatomi, laying the foundation for the rich tapestry of cultures that define the area today. Thank you for joining us on this journey to the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center, Marquette, Michigan, and the Upper Peninsula. My hat's off to Dan Truckee for helping all of us embrace the uniqueness of this area of our country, to celebrate the traditions and cultures, and to always find joy in the rugged beauty that defines this extraordinary corner of the world. Dan Truckee is a very special person, a good neighbor, and obviously an excellent educator and director of the Beaumere Center. Everyone in Marquette, Marquette County, and the Upper Peninsula should become frequent visitors to the Beaumere UP Heritage Center. They have a wide range of exhibits and cultural events that are adult-focused and relaxing. Can you say date night? Just perfect. Here's the contact information one last time. You can visit them at their website at nmu.edu slash Heritage Center. The Beaumere Center is located in Grease Hall, at the corner of 7th Street and Tracy Avenue on the campus of Northern Michigan University. Northern Michigan University is at 1401 Prescue Isle Avenue, Marquette, Michigan. You can phone them at 906-227-3212. You can email them at heritage at nmu.edu. You can find them on Facebook at Beaumere. That's B-E-A-U-M-I-E-R-N-M-U. Okay? Now, if questions occur to you and you'd like more information, please connect with the center via the contact information just provided. I really hope this information helps the audience understand how valuable the center is to the community and what kinds of excellent services they have to offer to the NMU students and the public. You know, the Beaumere Upper Peninsula Heritage Center is truly one of our preservation oaks. Okay, that's a wrap for this episode. Music used today is from Cymbalbird, Track Tribe, Chris Hagen, Steve Adams, Low Tone, and Scott Holmes. MicroStream Radio is a registered trademark. You can visit us at www.microstreamradio.com. This broadcast is owned and copyrighted by MicroStream Radio. It cannot be rebroadcast, downloaded, copied, or used anywhere without the written permission of MicroStream Radio. Thanks to everybody for listening. This is Sean Radcliffe. We'll see you all next time on Preservation Oaks. And until then, keep on giving and keep on living the good life.